Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, online, of course, you might be watching the live stream on our website, faithonhill.com. Maybe you're watching uh, through our YouTube channel, or you're listening to the audio podcast version on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Welcome. We are glad you are here. We know there's some folks who... uh, You know, we see a little bump in the summertime as they're on vacation somewhere watching. We miss you. We're glad that you're here. We've got a few people who are recovering in our church, uh, and we hope that your recovery continues to go well from surgeries and some procedures and things. And we know that there's people who are just checking us out. Uh, Most people who started coming to the church in the last couple years have said, hey, yeah, I watched online for a while. Welcome to you as well. If you have any questions, my email is adam at faithonhill.com. Whoever you are, Wherever you're watching, we're glad that you are here in person. Today is our last Sunday of doing Lawn Chair Church. You know, in July, we tend to go outside. It's really nice. We set up, you know, pop, pop-up tents for shade. and People bring beach blankets and lawn chairs and even their dogs sometimes. We hang out. It's a lot of fun. But it starts to get hotter in August, and so we'll come back inside starting next Sunday morning where we will have all the same stuff. Worship and song, prayer, kids' church, the whole thing. Today we're going to be looking at the story of Elijah, literally my favorite story in the Bible, Elijah chapter 18. Now I've said for a few weeks that this is my favorite story in the Bible, and my wife has been asking me, Adam, are we ever going to get there? And I said, yes, this is the week. Now, is it my favorite chapter in the Bible? No, that's Romans chapter 8. And there really is no story in the Bible that is greater than Easter Sunday, obviously. But in terms of just stories, you know, what we want to think of as Bible stories, you know, David and Goliath, uh, the flood, the, you know, the ark, the whole thing, Daniel and the lion's den. This is my favorite Bible story. I like it because it's funny. I like it because there's a lot of faith involved. I, I like it because there's a little biting wit and sarcasm, and that's just appeals to my sort of humor. There's fart jokes. And that appeals to the middle schooler in every, every one of us, I think. In chapter 18, last week we saw at the beginning of the chapter that God told Elijah, it's time to go back. After three years of drought, no rain has fallen on Israel. And now, all right, it's time. Go and present yourself to Ahab. So last week, Elijah made the journey to go present himself to Ahab. He has this whole interaction with Obadiah. And then in verse 16, Obadiah, that's the second in command, the right-hand guy for the king, goes and meets Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned Yahweh and his commands, and you have followed the Baals. So there's this whole back and forth between Elijah and the king. And the king calls him out and says, you are the one that's causing trouble for us. For three years, there's been no rain. Our crops are dying. Our livestock are dying. We, we, we don't have enough water to drink. Undoubtedly, because drought comes with heat, uh, undoubtedly there were people who died because of it. Old and young who suffered. People on the margins of society who suffered. And Ahab is blaming Elijah. And there is an argument that he's not wrong. There's an argument that, well, yes, 
This whole thing started because Elijah stood up three years prior and said to the king, it will not rain until I say so, because you have defied God and I have prayed and it will not rain until I say. And for three years it has not. And so you can understand from Ahab's perspective why he is blaming Elijah. But Elijah pushes back. I think the church needs to be quicker to listen than it is. I was talking to a brother just this week, loves Jesus, is serious about his faith. He's not necessarily the quickest to listen to what others have to say that don't share his view of the world. I think the church needs to be quicker to listen. But I think in an overreaction, because we haven't been quick to listen, there are those who are afraid to stand our ground. There are some of us, and at times I've been in this way, who are afraid or hesitant to push back. And it's an art rather than a science, knowing when to listen and when to stand firm. But Elijah here pushes back. I'm not the one who's causing trouble. It's not like everything was going good. There was nothing wrong. And then one day I just got up and said, hey, it's not going to rain. Take that. It's because of you and your fathers who have abandoned the commands of God. That's why this is going wrong. You see, things were bad in Israel. When you went, if you lived in the northern kingdom of Israel and you wanted to go and worship God, you didn't go to the temple where you were supposed to in Jerusalem. No, you were told, go to this other place. And an idol was erected that was supposed to represent the God of Israel. And they said, go worship that idol instead. Don't do what God's told you to do. Don't go where God's told you to go. Just do this. It's easier. And by the way, we do that for public reasons because, you know, we're, we're a God-fearing people. But the rest of the week, we go to the groves, the hidden places, and we worship at the Baal and the Ashtarapol. We give honor to the gods of the Canaanites and those around us. There was involved in that violence, immorality, horrible things, terrible things. In person, you know, this is our last Sunday doing Lawn Chair Church, so Sunday I won't be able to say exactly what, but there was, you know, online it's a little bit different. There was child sacrifice. There was sexual activity happening in the open for anyone to see. There was abuse. There was corruption. Idolatry worship of false gods. Things were bad in the northern kingdom of Israel. Elijah was just the messenger of what God was doing. There is a question, I think, in our day about do Christians cause trouble in our society? And let me be honest, I know how this sermon is supposed to go. When you're a preacher, sometimes you'll come to a part of the Bible and you'll go, okay, I've got to figure out how to say it. What's, what am I supposed to say here? What, what's, what's the point and all that kind of stuff? But there are well-known passages, and you just kind of know what you're supposed to preach on. And sometimes that's good. I mean, there's, you, no one's trying to reinvent the wheel. You know, the Christmas story is the Christmas story, and I don't need to come up with something profound. It's the Christmas story. But at the same time, I think what happens is when we just go, oh, I know how this is supposed to be preached. I know how how I'm supposed to read this and we don't think is what's actually happening here. 
Because how I'm supposed to preach this sermon in America in 2023, or any time really for the last 50, 100 years, whatever, Ahab is supposed to represent the world, and Elijah represents the church, and Elijah is standing up, and he is speaking the truth to the world around him, those that reject God. Well, that's true. At the same time, Ahab is not the Roman emperor. He's not the pharaoh in Egypt. He's not the king of the Medes and the Persians. He's not leading one of the Canaanite tribes or the Edomites or the Philistines or any of these other groups that appear in the, in the Hebrew scripture. He's the king of Israel. Elijah is not speaking to somebody outside of God's people. He's speaking to the political, national leader of the majority of God's people. What I'm saying there is that when we think of who God is speaking to, who God's trying to get their attention, who God might have issues with, it's not just Hollywood. It's not just Wall Street. It's not just secular leaders or thinkers or influencers. It could be religious people, religious leaders, religious thinkers, religious influencers, church people, church leaders, church thinkers, church influencers. Elijah is speaking to the king of Israel, not the king of Babylon. So this whole back and forth debate, who's causing trouble? The king and Elijah are finally three years in the making having their showdown. I find it's often helpful to go and look for situations and examples outside of what's being debated. Ahab, Elijah, going toe-to-toe. Who's caused all this trouble? Makes me think in the book of Genesis. Abram later had his name changed to Abraham. There was a drought and a famine in Israel then. It wasn't called Israel at the time, but it was the land of Cana, the promised land, same area. And there was a drought and a famine then. And so he went down to Egypt because on the Nile Delta, things were still good. And so Abram and his wife and his family and all his herds and flocks go travel down because there's food in Egypt and they can trade for food and supplies. There's enough water to drink. But he's afraid. And he says, you know what? My wife's really beautiful. And what will happen is that the Pharaoh is going to see how beautiful my wife is and how rich I am. And he is going to kill me. And he's going to take my wife for his own. And so he tells his wife, I want you to tell them you're my sister and not my wife. And then that way, they won't try to kill me. And so Pharaoh does exactly what Abram thinks he's going to do. Although we will never know, would he have taken tried to take Sarah as his wife had he known that she was married to Abram. But he takes her and puts her in his harem, but he doesn't touch her, doesn't, doesn't sleep with her. And she's there in the harem, wherever room she's been put up in. And this plague and, and, and illness starts to befall the Pharaoh and his household. And he comes up to Abram and he goes, what did you do? What, what has caused this? What, what, what wrong have I done? And then he finds out that Sarah is actually Abram's wife. And he said, hey, why'd you bring this trouble on me? Now, Abram did not help the situation. He shouldn't have lied. 
He should have trusted God. All of that is true. But he wasn't the one who went and forcibly took a woman from her family as a power move. He wasn't the one who had a reputation that Abram would even think, oh, the Pharaoh's going to kill me and take my wife. He had done it before. I guarantee there is a reason that Abram thought that. There's a reason that he thought this would happen because I guarantee that the Pharaoh had done it before. That he had taken someone else's wife and sent them on their way and said, you're lucky to still be alive. Or maybe they didn't live through it. We don't know. But I guarantee that happened. Something like that happened. You could say, oh, Abram shouldn't have lied. He shouldn't have. Abram should have trusted God. Yes, he should have. But was he the one who brought the trouble on himself? Or was it Pharaoh? And was Pharaoh blame shifting for taking a woman that he should not have taken as his wife? Because he already had several. It's one thing to say, you know what? Hey, we look around in our day. And you know what? The church has problems. I'm the first to say it. You tell me you've had a bad experience, a bad situation in a church. I believe you. And I I know that that is real. At the same time, at the same time, one of the great lies, lies that is being told today, I believe this, is that we are safer among the world than we are among the church. Now, there are individual churches that are not safe. And I also recognize that there are people who are not ready to be back in the church regularly. I get that. I I, I get that, and I understand. But we're not safer among the world. We're not safer among those who reject Jesus. You want to see the scars? Man, I'll sit down and tell you all the things that have happened to me in churches. Adam, you're a pastor. Really? Yes. Yeah, I can tell you the things that have happened. I know that the church is not always a safe place, but I know that it's where Jesus is. Are there churches individually that I've told people, don't go there, it's not a safe place? Yeah. Are there ministries that I have seen be exposed as dangerous places? Yes. And there's fallout from that. A friend of mine took over a a large, well-known ministry in another part of the country. And his first week on the job as the president of this organization. It came out that years before, this organization had supported a ministry that had been an abusive place. And all of a sudden, he's having to pick up pieces and shovel out mess and work at healing and restoration for people that he had no hand in hurting. But it's now his responsibility to minister to and to repent to and to say, how can we do what is right for you? I know the church is a mess, but I know the world is not the safe place. Ahab comes along to Elijah and says, you're the one causing trouble. And I will, I will say, sure, there are places where the church could do better. Absolutely. But in the world around us, is it the church causing trouble or is it the church trying to help? Think about the major afflictions that our community deals with. The church is not driving our homelessness epidemic. The church is not driving our drug addiction. The church is not driving 
the violence that is going on in our community. But all over the community, there are churches that are trying to help. Our sister churches, we have, we have several in this area, but one of our sister churches in southeast Portland, there's gun violence all over that community in that neighborhood. And the church is becoming a focal point where people in the neighborhood are meeting together and saying, how can we help fix this? And all of a sudden, the pastor who never thought I'd be in the middle of a gang conflict is now working with community leaders to solve that very problem. Another one of our churches up in Northeast, the same thing, shooting after shooting after violence. Their church is, is being broken into or attempted to be broken into all the time. And yet they're still there working to try to solve the problems. Bring Jesus who solves the problems. Homelessness. There are churches all over working to solve that in different ways, working to help keep people off the street in different ways and in different means. And some have larger, some have smaller ministries. I was in a meeting a couple years ago with many church leaders locally. And people in the community have told me, oh, that church is a problem. I said, that church has done more to work on homelessness than just about anybody in the area. I was in a meeting a couple of years ago where an official from Clackamas County said the church in Clackamas County was the biggest force fighting homelessness. Are we the cause of the troubles? Or is it the world around us and we're just bringing the message of God? Does that mean that the church has no issues? No. But I do reject, in general, the idea that the church is the cause of the issues. Nobody's perfect. We have stuff to work on. And I believe God is doing a purifying work in the church in America. I do. But this idea of who's causing trouble, the showdown between Ahab and Elijah is around this question. And Elijah says, look, yeah, there's been suffering. And you can see me as the personification of that suffering because it was Elijah who brought the word that the rain would stop. But he said, all of this happened because of your sin, your rebellion, your violence, your idolatry, your immorality. And then Elijah turns and he says, now, verse 19, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, he wouldn't have literally meant all of Israel, but the, you know, each tribe would have sent and leaders, each town, each community would have had representatives when an assembly like that was called. And he said, here, bring me, these are the main leaders of Baal and Asherah, bring them here. So they all assemble. Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went up before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And what he means by that is this. There were people like King Ahab who had just publicly, totally rejected God and given himself over to the worship of false gods and everything that came with it, the violence, the immorality, so on and so on and so on. But then there was a larger group, the majority of Israel, who on one hand still observed a Sabbath day, still, uh, you know, went on the Day of Atonement and offered sacrifices. Now, they didn't go where they were supposed to go. They didn't do it like they were supposed to do it. But at least on paper, they were still keeping the big commands, you know, 
uh, like, hey, we're going to go and keep the Sabbath day, and we're going to go and we're going to do the, the Day of Atonement, and do all these things. And then at the same time, oh, you keep the Sabbath day, that's so good. But then once Sabbath is over, you go to the groves and you sleep with the temple prostitutes at the Ashtoreth poles. You go to the Baal and you worship false gods and you, and you put uh, innocence to death and all of these things. Stop being two-sided. Pick a side. Reject God if you want, but pick a side. In our day, we see this all the time. People who want faith, people who, who want to be around Jesus and yet will not fully commit themselves. This is a reality. If there are people up and down the street, up all over this neighborhood, all over our city, all over our community, and if you said to them, are you a Christian? They say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And then if you say, okay, would anybody believe you? What I mean by that is this. I remember in high school, I was talking to a friend of mine, not a Christian, not a believer. But we were talking, and, and uh, I was like, oh, hey, I know somebody who goes to your school. I said the guy's name. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know him. How do you know him? I said, oh, from church. He goes, no way. That guy goes to church? And it's not like, oh, you go to church, so you got to like be spotless and perfect and clean and all this stuff. But it was the way that that guy lived his life for my friend said, hey, there's no way I believe that that guy believes in God. It's one thing to say, hey, nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. It's another thing to say, how you live your life says that to believe in Jesus would be a lie. And that's what Elijah is speaking to the people and the leaders of all Israel. You, you, on, on Saturday, you keep the Sabbath. On Sunday, you worship false gods. You go and make your sacrifices to Yahweh, and then you go and sleep with the temple prostitutes. Pick a side. The people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Strictly speaking, that's not true. But you know what? This says to me, again, the church is not perfect. The people in the church are not perfect. Elijah was not perfect. Elijah had issues, and yet he was the one God was using. And we can throw stones at the churches that we frustrate us. And let me tell you something. There are churches that frustrate me. There are pastors that frustrate me. There are pastors that I wish would just shut up sometimes, you know? I'm sure somebody wishes that about me. Elijah wasn't perfect. And somebody could have stood up and said, come on, Elijah, you know that's not true. But yet he was the one who was willing to stand up and stand for God and do the things that he was supposed to do. So give him a break. <laughs> he says, get two bulls for us. Let the prophets of Baal choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And then you call in the name of your God and I will call in the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, then that one's God. And then all the people said, what you say is good. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. And since there are so many of you and call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it. So that's the deal. Hey, you're everybody's watching. Everybody's witnessing. Okay. Two bulls. I'm not even going to pick first. You pick first, whichever bull you want, whichever one looks more flammable. 
take it, prepare it how you want according to the rituals of your customs and put it on the altar. Don't light a flame to it. And we'll see whose God sets their altar on fire first. And so they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. There was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he is in deep thought. Or maybe he's busy. Oh, maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping. He must be awakened. You got to get really loud in your shouting. You got to wake him up. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. What do you have to do to please a false god? They thought, well, first we'll dance. That sounds nice. We'll get up, we'll dance. You always put your best face forward, right? It's like Scientology. You know, you don't, you don't tell them about Lord Xenu until later. Look that up if you don't know what I'm talking about. But Scientology is this religion that actually very few people believe in. It's this cult group. Very few people actually believe in it. But out of those who do, a lot of them, a disproportionate amount, are A-list celebrities. And they believe crazy stuff. But they don't tell you about it at first. At first, it's all about just having good vibes and good attitude and this whole thing. So Elijah is kind of doing the same thing. He's watching them do their thing. Well, first, they're just dancing. Oh, look at that. That's wonderful. They're just doing a dance. It's part of their tradition and their culture and all this stuff. And then nothing happens. So they start shouting. Oh, and hey, shout louder if that'll help you. And he's pointing out, well, maybe he's this, maybe he's that. And they start cutting themselves. And how many people, to appease a false god, it starts out innocent enough. I'm just working on my career. I'm just building my, my place in this world. I'm just really care about these issues. And so you start doing this, doing that. It's no big deal. And then the next thing you know, you're cutting yourself. And there are people to appease their false God are there shouting and cutting and hurting themselves and others because they think that will bring the favor. And there's all kinds of ways. You know, Americans, we generally speaking, don't worship idols. Just about every person in uh, Bible stories and Bible times believed in a God of some form. And most people worldwide believe in a God of some form. But yet, in America, our false gods are not made of stone, generally speaking. They're often made of careers, diplomas, bottom lines, sports teams. And I love sports. I I get really weirded out sometimes when preachers say things about sports because, you know, NFL happens on Sunday mornings the same time as church does. Look, I love sports. You're never going to hear me say like, oh, you know, it's evil to like sports. And I've heard preachers say that. At the same time, have I seen people worship at the false god of athletic achievement? Absolutely. Parents more than the actual athletes. I've seen where where parents have done that. They just give themselves over to it 
fully living vicariously through the success of their children. And then what happens is this. I was, years ago, I was doing a pastoral internship at a, at a fairly large church. And that church was responsible for doing the regional conference for all the churches in their group of churches. It's kind of like how every year Valley View hosts our annual conference every November. And, um, you know, thankful for Valley View Church doing that. Well, this church up in Seattle hosted for their, that group of churches. And so for, for, I was doing the pastoral internship and I volunteered. They were doing this big conference. They had speakers coming in from all over the country. And I said, I will go get them. And so I was the guy who was sent to go down to the airport and get them and take them to their hotel. I wanted that job. And here's why. In fact, a buddy of mine was like, no, I'm doing it. So we both did it. So two of us go get the guy, take him to the hotel. And as we're driving into the hotel, we said, hey, man, just download information into us. You know, you're coming, you're speaking at this conference, you've got years of experience and pastoring, and we're just young guys. We feel this call of God on our life. We're doing this pastoral internship. Both of us to this day are still pastoring, and, and we just wanted to hear from them. And I remember one of the pastors that we picked up and we took to the to this hotel from the airport came from a part of the country that had significant AAU basketball leagues. And this is the place where, where Division I NCAA schools recruited heavily from for their basketball programs, you know. And, and he said, I, I've been in my city for 30 years now. And he said, I've been 30 years, it's long enough to have seen the same thing repeat itself over and over again, where a family kind of disappears while they're traveling week in and week out with their select basketball teams. And then their kid isn't actually good enough to play in the pros. Like maybe they get a division one scholarship and ride the bench, or maybe they get on a division two school and they're a big star. And then they try to play in Europe for a little bit. But in the end of the day, they're 20 something years old. And then their parents come to me and say, man, you pray for me. My kids don't have any faith. It's not basketball. That's the problem. Sports are great. You know, go Blazers. The issue is, is that they put all of their time and effort and energy into achievement and didn't put even close to that in building their faith and, the, and, and, and showing that to their children. It was, you know, there was the God part of their life. That box is checked off. You know, we go to church enough times to check that box off. We pray before meals, all whatever. But faith, Jesus was not the center of their home and their family. Others have done the same for careers. You know, they, they, they are successful, they build things, they make stuff happen, and then their family's going, hey, we don't know who you are. They do it for relationships, for, for intimacy, for sexual fulfillment, and then they'll cut off those closest to them to seek and appease the false god of their own lust. Here are these prophets who are cutting themselves, who are giving themselves fully over. Come and do this thing. Prove yourself. And they had no one answered because there was nobody there to answer. Then Elijah, verse 30, said to the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Mount Carmel was a, a place of significance in Israel's history. And there had been an altar of God there, but it had been torn down. That's why Elijah chose it. And he rebuilds in front of them the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. 
And he took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built the altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. Uh, and he said, that's about 24 pounds of seed. So that's how big this trench was around the altar. <clears throat> and he arranged around it uh, the wood, and he cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and over all the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down the altar and filled the trench. Now, I could see somebody in the crowd saying this. It has not rained in any significant way in three years. We are in a drought. The wells are running dry. And you are dumping water, jar after jar, three times, 12 jars in total, poured over this altar. What a waste. And then it says that at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. I am your servant, and I have done these things at your command. And what, what, it, what that's telling us as the reader is, it might seem like Elijah's being arbitrary, but this is what God told him to do. Somebody might go, oh, what a waste. Elijah is doing what he had been commanded to do. There are those, back to this conversation of who's causing trouble, Elijah or Ahab, the church or the world, there are those who say the church is doing, needs to do this, and if it's not doing this, then we consider it bad. The church should shut up about this thing and just stick to doing this other thing. As if the world around us determines what it is that God has called the church to do. God has called the church to preach Jesus, to make disciples, and await the coming of the Lord. That's what we're called to do, to preach the gospel and make disciples. That's the mission of the church. You want me to go and do this other thing? Maybe that's something God wants us to do too. Absolutely. Like we talked about last week, there's Obadiahs and there's Elijahs and people are called to different things. But the world around us doesn't determine the mission of the church. And there's people that probably thought, oh man, what a waste. Why is Elijah doing this? It's because it's what God told him to do. So Elijah stands up and he says, please, Lord, show them that you are God. Show them that I've been speaking for you the whole time. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Yahweh, are God and you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil and licked up the water in the trench. What is the fire of the Lord? I would say most likely lightning, but it could also have been something else miraculous. It took and consumed everything. Everything was gone. It took it all. And when the people saw this, they fell prostrate down and they cried out, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them and Elijah had them brought them down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Whoa, that seems harsh. Cut out the sin. Cut it out. Things need to be gotten rid of. I do not believe there is a biblical prohibition against having a glass of wine. Not a teetotal. I'm sorry if that offends you. 
I cannot find a place in the Bible that says so. In fact, Jesus made wine. I believe it. Jesus drank wine. Paul told Timothy, drink a little wine. Hey, for your stomach's sake, take some wine. At the same time, there are many people who should never touch a drop in their whole life. You know, my, my, I have a friend um, whose wife was a sommelier. She was, you know, that was her job was at a restaurant. She was in charge of all the wine. He never touched a drop in his life. And, and I said, so what, what's the difference? And he said, well, my wife's fine. She's not an issue for her. But you know, in college, I drank a lot. I can't touch the stuff. People need to know what's destroying them. When I was a youth pastor in California, I remember there was a girl in the youth group who took all of her dad's booze and poured it down the drain in front of him, said, you have to stop. This has to end. But he wouldn't listen. He was like the people of Israel. He was a good guy. I really liked him. This is not me knocking him. He wouldn't listen. He went and kept on drinking, kept on giving himself over to drugs, and it destroyed him. He wouldn't cut out the friends who kept bringing the drugs and the alcohol back into his life. He wouldn't cut himself off from the world that was destroying him. And one day they found him gone, overdosed. There there is a place and say, it's time to shut it down. Women and men in our, our culture are given over to immorality. Do you have filters? Filters don't work. Do you have a dumb phone? so that you and I are not given over to sin and pornography, addiction, whether it's alcohol or whether it's sex, whether it's career or whether it's achievement or whatever, what will you do? Say, hey, this is what's stopping me from living fully in the goodness of God. And so you might say, oh, that sounds harsh. Remember, the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth were people who led others into violence were people who would have been heavily involved in what we would call human trafficking, would have been people that would have been basically uh, pimps for prostitutes. These would have been people you did not want around. You wanted to get them gone. And so for their sins, all right, they need to go away. And it might sound harsh, and I'm not advocating that we go around killing people different situation, different time. But we do need to be brutal and ruthless in our own lives. I can't control what somebody else does. I can't control what another church does. I can't control what another person does. But in our own life, in my own life, are we ruthless about saying, what keeps me from God? And that I might cut it off. I might remove it so that I will not sin against him. You know, I'm so thankful that God works when he works. This was in God's time. Why didn't God work years before? Why did it take three years? Why wasn't it sooner? This was the Lord's moment. And it was in this moment that people's lives were changed. Not everybody. The nation had problems. There were still people were people. But in this moment, there were people who turned themselves back. Their hearts returned to God. And they did what was necessary. And there are moments in our lives where we have clarity in crisis. Do not waste those moments. Do not say, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. For today is the day of salvation. For today is the day where we may be filled with the Holy Spirit and we may say yes to God in a fuller, 
deeper, life-changing way. If you're not a believer, today is a day to have faith. If you're a believer, but you've been wavering between two opinions, the world and Jesus, today is a day of commitment. If you're a believer, but you know that this sin or that sin is taking you from God, today is the day of repentance. There is power from God through the Holy Spirit. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus died to save sinners. We don't have to save ourselves. We don't have to cut ourselves or dance around or go through all of these steps and rituals so that God will like us. God already loves you. And I can't, I can't do the right thing under my own power. But God gives me power as God the Holy Spirit comes into my life and comes into your life and gives us the power to stand and follow after him. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that consumed that sacrifice whole is the same power that enters into the church and into the lives of Christians who believe. God bless you. Know that there is hope, there is change, and there is power available because Jesus is so good to us.